real meaning behind your favorite songs. Not just big hits, but iconic culture-changing pieces of art. This is Anatomy of a Song on Feedback. SiriusXM 106, it's volume. Feedback. Nick Carter, Laurie Majewski, Mark Myers is here uh, from the Wall Street Journal, another anatomy of a song. And I have to tell you, as a kid, I always loved that song, but it was when Ann Wilson told me the story, complete with impressions, I was like, I'm in. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's the story of heart in general. Is a, It's a love story. It's a drama story. It's an escape story. It's a return story. And family. It's and family story. Have you ever and seen it, the flow chart of the members of that band? Yeah, it's, it's a lot. unbelievable. It's a lot. Well, you know, they broke up. They returned. You know, it's, there's a lot going on. Um, that song, Barracuda, um, released in May 77, goes to number 11. Uh, it's got that great riff. Most people thought the song was about a fish or a muscle car. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like it, it's it's not inconceivable considering it's '77, right? Um, and it wasn't. Um, forty years, really, forty years exactly before "Me Too," the words written and sung by Ann Wilson on there are about sexist record executives. Um, sort of hidden in there uh, for the time. Uh, but now that uh, we know what that's all about, it's um, pretty, pretty stark. I'm so glad that that doesn't exist anymore, that yeah, they know, com- we've gone completely through eradicated. that period. Right, right. Hallelujah! Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah completely gone. Um, it's, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing is the band fractured, um, yeah, I think probably early 80s, I think. You'd probably... Early 80s, does that sound right? Yeah. Um, and today, Anne and Nancy Wilson tour as Hart. Mike DeRosia and Steve Fossen tour as Hart by Hart. And Mike and Roger Fisher are about to release Heart of the Blues, which is a great, great rock album. Um, so they're all, they're all doing their thing. But the Hart story, which most people don't know, and Wiki's completely wrong. I mean, it's top to bottom wrong. Um, the heart story itself is is interesting because it's um it's a love Did story. You say wiki as in Wikipedia. Wikipedia is completely wrong. Yeah, yeah, it's completely wow. wrong. Wow. Okay. Um, it's a love story between two brothers and two sisters and two hits and there's a lot of drama. There's a lot of what makes this song and this group so interesting is this push and pull of the relationship and and how they um, take this relationship on the road and how they manifest as as the group. Um, it goes back to 67, um, guitarist Roger Fisher. I mean, I I think what we should first do is talk about Hart because the band's evolution has everything to do with the song itself. The, in 67, guitarist Roger Fisher and bassist Steve Fossen and manager Mike Fisher form a band called Army. Not a militaristic thing. Terrible name. Right. But, but it's not what it means, which is interesting because Mike told me what it meant because I asked him the same question. Um, it's they, these guys felt the the masses had more power than the individual. You know, it's, this is the Vietnam t- moving toward the end of the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War won't end in the early seventies, uh, late sixties, and the seventies. And it's it's the T H E E R A R E me M E 
So it's, I, I know. Even worse. I know, but it's not, it's not the word it means, right? Um, at any rate, um, they know it. And a year later, um, Mike is drafted uh, in 68. <laughs> Yeah. Irony. Yeah. Yeah. That's what happens. Way, he, way to manifest something, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. It should have, it should have, the band should have been called Caribbean, right? Oh. <laughs> or or uh, Paris, Paris Resort. Um, a year later, Mike is drafted. His, his, um, he, he goes to court. He contests his induction. Shortly after, his home is raided and he splits for Canada. Um, back in Seattle, this is 71, Roger, Steve, and Ann. Um, and Wilson form a band. They're all from the Seattle area, and they form a band called Hocus Pocus. One day, Mike crosses into the States uh, to see the band at the Iron, at the Iron Bull in Bellingham um, in Washington State, and um, he and Ann hit it off. Um, back in Canada, goes back to Canada, Mike and Ann start writing each other. They correspond. Um, then when they begin, they begin, what they do is they begin traveling. Uh, he, he sneaks into the States and he sees her um, perform and, and on her off days, she's leaving Hocus Pocus and coming up to visit him. Um, so there's something very college about it, right? And then it's like girlfriend, boyfriend split up and they're going traveling back and forth. Um, in, late, in late 71, Anne quits Hocus Pocus and moves to Vancouver to live with Mike. Uh, Hocus Pocus continues without Anne, um, but eventually the band breaks up. You know, they're just, they're just not, it's not cohesive. In 72, Mike asks Roger and Steve to join him and Anne in Vancouver, and they come up and they form Heart. Um, Anne's sister, Nancy, Anne and Nancy are very close, as you guys know. They're very, very tight. Um, Nancy comes up to visit Anne often, and at one of those visits, those guys who are playing together, they say, you know, why don't you play with us? You know, why don't you, why don't you join and, and play, play along? So she does, um, and they start touring, and Nancy hits it off with Roger. Now, keep in mind, Mike and Roger Fisher are brothers, and Anne and Nancy Wilson are sisters. So Nancy hits it off with Roger. Anne is living with, with Mike. Um, and before long, Nancy and Roger are living together also up there. Um, by 74, just goes to show you how, what kind of an impact a relationship has. The band is as tight as a watch at this point. I mean, they're just, they're touring, they're living together, they're, you know, they're, they're happy. I mean, it's, it's one big happy family and they're touring. <clears throat> now, we sh you know, we should note and we'll hear shortly, Anne really does have one of the great rock and roll voices, don't you think? I mean, it's like a blowtorch. Oh, yeah. And it's just so powerfully strong. And still is. And, and still is. And I, if anybody doubts that who's listening, you know, just go and listen to uh, Barracuda. Uh, listen to Anne sing Barracuda like in the late 70s. And when she picks up that mic and starts singing, man, it's just the, you can just see the needles run into the red. You know, it's just powerful, powerful, strong projection. Um so by 74, Hart's got this massive following only in the Pacific Northwest. It's really where they're touring and people are coming to see them and they're selling out wherever they play. That same year, Mike decides to return to the United States and resolve his legal issues. You know, get that all squared away. This is 74. So he appears in federal court in Seattle in May of 74, and the case winds up being dismissed in February 75 due to insufficient merit. There's just, you know, the government, I think, probably, there's so many of these cases that there's no point prosecuting them. The war's 
just about over, if not over. Um, and, um, you know, those who are coming back and wanting to, you know, come back to the States, there's just, you'd need incredible evidence to even have a case that, that there's something, you know, that there was something illegal there. Um, not to mention there's so much wire, there's so much government scandal going on at this point, you know, post-Watergate, there's, you know, the president's resigning. There's wiretapping. You know, it, it's it's sort of ridiculous to have governments, you know, that's so corrupt in some respects, and you're chasing somebody for going off to Canada. Um, at any rate, um, everybody's got a different uh, feeling on that. But um, the case is dismissed, and meanwhile, Hart records their first album demo. They they put together a demo up in Vancouver, and then they shop it around. But there's no takers probably because they're just only popular in the Pacific Northwest. And there's just the record companies probably feel that they've got to invest too much to make them a national sensation. <clears throat> Enter Canada's Mushroom Records. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Um, the label records the band's first studio album. They put up the money. They fund it. Um, and that's Dreamboat Annie. And Mike Flicker produces it. And the album's was released in Canada first in late 75 in Seattle, in, and, and in Seattle, in Canada and in Seattle, where they're popular in 75. And then they release it in the U.S. in early 76. The two singles that are released are killer hits. They just run right up the Billboard charts. One is Crazy on You, but even more important is Magic Man, which goes to number nine. It's actually their their best-selling hit. Um, Barracuda, keep in mind, wound up being number 11. Magic Man was number nine. Even over later 80s ones? Yeah, everything. Magic wow. Man, number nine, like was their highest, monster. highest hit. Yeah, Still yeah. plays wow. on classic rock every day. Today. Yeah, yeah. And it, the song's written by Anne and Nancy Wilson, and it's about Mike Fisher. You know, it's really, the Magic Man is Mike Fisher. And, um, you know, he's, he's, interesting thing is, he is, um, he doesn't play in the band, but he's the creative director. He has this vision for the band that it needs to combine several, if it combines these several ingredients, it will really work. And I'll tell you about those ingredients That's in a minute. That's the magic. Yeah, well, he's magic. You know, he's putting it, ma together a potion. Yeah, exactly. no, that was more sexual, but you know, it's a, it's a nice thought. Magic man. Um, but let, let's 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 give a, a fast listen to Crazy on You and Magic Man. Let's listen to Crazy on You first. Still folk rock. With hard rock over the top. Roger Fisher, yes. And when Nancy does that uh, acoustic intro live, it is magic. It's just insane. But it's magic, man, that blows everything out for them, completely changes the game. A little funky, a little R&B, but it's rock and roll. That's Roger Fisher's guitar again. This still shows up regularly in like 70s movies, weed smoking scenes. Yeah. <laughs> Always. Yeah. It's got a little psychedelic-y kind of thing going on, peace, love thing, but it's, you know, Roger Fisher's guitar is just always 
a welcome razor edge sound. Um, so, so Mike's. So, what is Mike's vision for this band? What are these secret ingredients? What are, what, how, what does he put together? Mike believes that that if they combined the 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 feel of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young with Joni Mitchell and Led Zeppelin, they would have a, they would have a chance. They would actually have a shot. And it's kind of interesting. It sounds like okay, you know, what else do you want to throw into the pot here? You know, it's like okay, right. Right, get it. Crosby, Stills, Nash. You got Joni Mitchell and you got Led Zeppelin. Why not? But if you listen to these groups individually around this same period, right, it's really interesting how this, how Hart has this feeling, and he that he's sort of masterminded and overseen. Let's listen to Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Youngs. See the changes. She has seen the changes. So you got the, you got this soul of folk rock here, right? And l- listen to um, Joni's "Help Me" with uh, Tom Scott and the LA Express. Tom Scott, man. Wow. Um, I spoke to Tom yesterday. He's such a great guy. He's such a great guy. Um, Let's listen to uh, Led Zeppelin's Custard Pie. So if you think of these three mushed together, it's it's hard. Right. I know. So you know you have you know you have these three these three powerful elements during this period. You've got Joni's uh, yearning, right, and you got her angst. Uh, you got that angst feeling. You've got the Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young harmony, vocal harmony, and the sentiment uh, of that band. And then you've got the lawnmower, you know, of Led Zeppelin just plowing through um, with Roger. But if each of these, each each part of the band is sort of a different representation. But it's interesting how when you combine certain feelings and certain tones and certain um, uh, expressions that you wind up with something else. Uh, and Hart um, has that. And it's interesting. It's interesting that um, Mike Fisher sees Anne as Plant, you know, as Robert Plant. You know, that, that he sees the um, uh, open, uh, open rage and open rock passion of Ann Wilson. But it's sort of, you know, it's, it's supercharged by Fisher's guitar, but then it's, it's, it's modified or smoothed or softened by this sort of a folky rock undertone. And that's it's, the journey. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a really wise. Um, I think it's a it's it's a wise way of looking at it back in the mid seventies. But it's it's weird to me how it was, it was so contrived, and yet it, it doesn't sound it. And yet when you when you say okay, these are the three elements that they put into the pot, it's almost an eye roll because it's like, well, yeah, you want the three biggest, most disparate things Duh. of that time, right. exactly. But the fact that they made it work, yeah, it's yeah. just. It's a actually sophi- amazing. Absolutely, you know, it's not just like, you know, 
we want to have the Beatles and the Stones and Elvis. And if we can put those together, it'll be really cool. It'll be three times as big. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's, it, there's, there's so much subtlety here and there's so much sophistication in terms of how these, these three are combined. They can't, they can't mimic or mirror any of those groups. They can't sound like a cover band because that's not going to work. So in, in a sense, it's almost like he, he, they, he sort of burned down each of these, boiled them down to their essence oils, right? And then sort of created this kind of new aroma or this new flavor that just kind of hints or reminds you of something you heard, but you can't quite right. place Until it. Until you said it, I wasn't walking around saying, well, hard is just Joni Mitchell plus CSNY plus, you know, plus right. Led Zeppelin. Right. But it, that's, right. it, I wasn't walking around saying that. But once you say it, you're like, oh, yeah. And then when you break it down like that, when you listen to each, in, each song, like when you hear the pure, unbridled sound of each of those groups, and then you say to yourself, okay, if you knew... If you knew those three groups intimately, you knew exactly how that music went, how would you combine it in a way that didn't produce a cover band, but at the same time captured the energy, the heart, and the soul of each one of those groups? It's not easy. Yeah, it's not easy. It's not easy. Let's pause it one second. We'll get right back to it with Mark Myers, another anatomy of a song, talking about heart and barracuda on Feedback. to the history of the iconic hits that changed rock, R&B, and pop. This is Anatomy of a Song on Feedback. So this ain't the end, I saw you again. Today, I had to turn my heart away. Smile like the sun, kisses for everyone. And tales, it never fails. Wow, here's the thing. I, I seek out those isolated bike vocal tracks. I never knew this one existed. That's what it is. That's it's nuts. just it's just the vocal track. Just the vocal track to Barracuda. Wow. Listen to that voice. She's she's a monster. She's a monster. Barracuda. I mean it's reverb on there, but still it's like You hear the echo? And especially this song, as we'll get into, her voice is like a dagger in this. Yeah, it's like a Memorex voice, right? It's like, you know, that, those ads from the 70s for Memorex cassette tape where the glass shatters after the person, after Ella Fitzgerald sings a little bit. Uh, this is Mark Myers, Anatomy of a Song for the Wall Street Journal. We're talking about Barracuda by Heart. So let's do the song story. You know, we just did the heart story, the love story that existed there and the drama that went on um, as the band comes together and they have a hit <clears throat> and the group members themselves get together. Um, the song story is even crazier. I mean, it's even it's it's even more dramatic. By 76, heart's a big deal. As we were talking about uh, with Magic Man, they tour in support of the first album. And in the fall of 76, Hearts Magic Man is number nine. So Mushroom um, decides it's going to design an ad that looks like a supermarket tabloid. And they use a photo, an outtake from the cover of Dreamboat Annie of Anne and Nancy cropped at the bare shoulders. So all you see are her other bare shoulders 
up. So it sort of looks like they're wear, they're not wearing tops. I mean, it looks almost like they're they're naked. Um, you know, that's what the cover kind of looks like. But this tabloid ad uses an even more suggestive outtake uh, from it. Um, have you guys seen the tabloid ad? It, it's in their book, Kicking and Dreaming. Yeah. It's unbelievable. I know. Um, so under under the under this photo, I mean, there's all kinds of tabloidy supermarket tabloidy headlines on this thing. But under their photo is the 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 headline. Hart's Wilson sisters confess it was only our first time. Now, Anne freaks when she sees this. And here's what she told me. I mean, basically, the headline is suggesting that they're incestuous lovers, you know, that, you know, it's, it's their first time together. And, you know, obviously, you can just see how sleazy and greasy the guys are at Mushroom for putting together an ad I was like say, that. You know, and if people don't forget, this is the label that did this. That's right. That's right. It's a trade ad that they're trying to they're trying to tell the industry, hey, you know, Hart pulled this off in a very short period of time. They're number nine. They're dominating the chart. You know, it's uh, it's and, and it was only their first time. But the way they set it up, it's so seventies guy sleazy. You know, open shirt with gold chains. You know, trashy. I mean, it's just really. Anyway, she, Anne freaks out, and here's what she told me. She said to mushroom executives. It was a funny, badass rock sales technique. And for Na- but for Nancy and me, who were raised by a feminist mother, we really felt violated. And to keep in mind, this is a culmination of a lot of stuff that's going on, you know, with Mushroom. Mushroom's not paying them on time. Um, Anne and Nancy are kind of treated like jewelry. I mean, they're adornments to this group. They don't re- the industry doesn't realize, and the label's not making a big, bigger deal out of the fact that Anne and Nancy are writing most of the songs. Nancy's carrying the entire band. I mean, if you think of other bands with a woman front person, I mean, you know, whether it's Grace Slick or, Blonde, or Debbie Harry, you know, it's not just a woman singing. It, they happen to, happen to be the entire aura of the band. And that's true of Hart too with, with, with Anne. Um, on October 15th in 76, Hart's in East Lansing to open for Steve Miller and the Silver Bullet Band. And they're at the ice rink at Michigan State about 6,100 seats, I think. Um, during Hart Soundcheck, guitarist Roger Fisher and drummer Mike DeRosia are jamming. You know, they take sound levels. They want to get the lighting cues down. This happens usually around 4 o'clock in the afternoon uh, before the concert um, for every band. It doesn't matter. You ever see the Rolling Stones sound checks, by the way? It's like they're setting up like at 6 in the morning. You know, it takes all day for 400 people to set their stage up and they're, they're runway up and everything. And then it's like they come out, you know, Mick will come out and they'll just, they'll hack around. But it's it's got to be like 2.30 in the afternoon. I mean, there's so much time they spend on getting the sound just right. Um, so at any rate, at the sound check, um, Roger and Mike DeRosier are up there jamming, and they play a riff with a galloping beat. Now, there's nothing new about a galloping beat. Galloping beats have been around for a long time. Um, let's listen to a TV, a TV galloping beat so we know we have reference here. <laughs> so there's, there's a galloping beat for Bonanza. Yeah. And this galloping beat goes even further back in time to the 19th century. Let's listen to um, let's listen to something by Rossini. So there's the origin of the uh, galloping beat. It's the William Tell overture. So 
Mike DeRosia, I asked Mike DeRosia, I said, you know, were there any other influences for you uh, that uh, came to mind? And he said, you know, we toured with Nazareth in Europe, and their cover of Joni, uh, Joni Mitchell's this, Fl- this Flight Tonight, was a bit of an inspiration for him because they'd heard it every night. And when he was playing the drums, he was, you know, wasn't following it because the two were very different. But he, he thought of it. Um, and uh, let's listen to Nazareth's, Nazareth's uh Nazareth, say it three times fast. This flight tonight, Joni Mitchell, the Joni Mitchell song. So that's what's bouncing around in Mike DeRosie's head, but they're not the same. That's a straight, straight beat. Uh, the Barracuda beat is much more, there's more syncopation, it's more sophisticated. Let's listen to the opening of uh, Barracuda so we can compare. Those harmonic tremolos of Roger Fisher. So anyway, <clears throat> those that's those are the feelings of, of that galloping beat, the background to that galloping beat. Um, Mike Fisher though loves this jam that they're that they're playing so much. He comes running up and he, he just, what are you guys doing? What are you playing? Oh no, we're just jamming around. So he decides to record it to cassette for future song ideas because you know as the creative director, he's always thinking capture anything that sounds great we can build we can work on it later uh, if we need something for the album um after Hart performs that night but before steve miller goes on both bands are backstage with record industry people and hangers on everybody's drinking and schmoozing as ann told me and at some point um a record industry guy a guy who fills stores with records in um, the detroit area uh, came up to her um, and said Hey, Anne, how's your lover? And Anne says, oh, hi, how you doing? Yeah, yeah, no, good, good. She points at Mike Fisher across the uh, space, and she says, go go say hi, he's over there. And then the guy smirks, and he says, no, 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 I, I mean your sister, you know. And Anne was like, Anne wanted to strangle the guy, but Anne, Anne was raised by a very tough mom. Her dad was in the Marines, and her mom always said, you, you bottle that rage. You never let that rage out. I said, you must have wanted to kill this guy. And she said, yeah, I did. Um, and she mentioned his name. I, mean, I know the guy's name, which is interesting. But I, I didn't, you know, I don't feel, um, I don't know if he's still around. I don't know if, you know, he would contest that, that, you know, it was a mistake. He wasn't him. It was his friend. So I really felt I needed to leave the name out. Um, but, you know, she just, she's absolutely nuts over this thing. And it's just, it's just completely disgusting. It's anathema to everything her family was all about. Um, you know, her image with her sister being close to her sister was just that sisters can be friends. And then the, the industry's reading all kinds of garbage into it. Um, and she, you know, she's livid out, you know, they leave pretty much shortly after that. They drive back to Detroit to the uh, hotel Pontchartrain and, up at the hotel, she goes up to her room. I mean, she tells her sister, and the sister's like, what? What? Um, back at the hotel, she goes up to her room. She writes a poem. You know, she's got this book of poetry that she writes when she's feeling one way or the other. And um, she writes all about the sleazy guys in the industry. It's really not about one specific person as much as it is about all of these guys. As she told me, in the 70s, traveling around and touring, they were meeting people like this every day. I mean, this wasn't sort of a breakout situation. It was going on all the time. Um, After the tour, you know, this is like October, so now we're talking December, early December, they're all back in Seattle. 
and you know the band's sitting around um, in a circle and they're going through some stuff and they decide to merge Anne's poem and Roger and Mike DeRosia's jam. So that that jam, that instrumental jam we heard, plus Anne's poem, they put it together. But the words of the poem don't fit neatly into a 4-4 time. So if you listen carefully to the song, every other measure of the verse of, of the verses, um, they're in 5-4 time, which is what gives the song a bit of sophistication. In other words, it's 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. I mean, you can hear the 5-4 every other, every other measure. That's what's actually capturing your ear. If it was just static 4-4, four, 4 four on the floor, it would be less, less interesting to your ear. Um, and so they put these two together. They work it out, get the words in, and they call the song Barracuda. Uh, so the word, I mean, the, the, did you know all that stuff about the word meanings? Yeah, yeah that, that I, I spoke to uh, spoke to Anne about. Um, and I said, you know, I took her through the entire lyrics and I said, what does this mean? What does that mean? What does this mean? So the word porpoise that pops up, you know, is her nickname for Nancy. That That's Nancy. So you could substitute Nancy's name for porpoise in the song. Um, when the Beatles had... I am a, when I Am a Walrus came out on Magical Mystery Tour in 67, they loved that song. And instead of calling each other, instead of calling each other, porp, you know, the, the, the walrus, who's the walrus, the mystery was that Anne, you know, I, I am the porpoise, Nancy's the porpoise. So that's, then they started calling each other porpoise, but they shortened it to porp, P-O-R-P. It's just a, it's just a, f- uh, it's an inside pet name. It's an yeah, inside it's a, pet name. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And and it's something nobody else knows, and they would just use it. And that's um, you know, there's a lot of stress on the road, and that's how they got through. The west, the quote, western pools um, were their homes, where they felt safe, and they felt comfortable, and they could be cut off from all the nonsense, uh, um, nonsense of the industry, and nonsense of the pressure, <clears throat> and just simply write. Um, the interesting thing for me. Um, <clears throat> The interesting thing for me was the um, the fact that Barracuda wasn't the first choice for the for the for the name for the for the bad guys mm. right for the sleaziness of somebody in this song the sleazy quality she started she had, she tried tiger and snake and a whole bunch of other things and each one of those just didn't have the right as she as, as Anne said they just didn't have the right level of greasy sleaziness um, but Barracuda did because the Barracuda just lurks and waits for its prey um, without doing much uh, except waiting around to um, to let something loose on somebody um, and after after this song's put together the band realizes they've had it with mushroom mushroom as I said isn't paying um, they're not uh, they're they're not supporting they ran that trade ad they're not happy at all so when their producer Mike Flicker um, leaves the label over a, a dis- I think it was a contract dispute with mushroom they Mike Mike F- excuse me Mike will like right Mike Fisher wisely had built into the contract a clause that said we will only be produced by Mike Flicker and if Mike wow. Flicker's not around that's brilliant really yeah, yeah. smart if this guy's not producing you know there's too much risk that we're going to be badly produced and we're out. You know, we can get out of our contract. It's our option to stay or leave. Because I always wondered how they walked before the label imploded a few years later, but I always wondered how they just like, because they were a big act. Absolutely. It was that clause that Mike had built into it, that if uh, Mike Flicker had left, 
they could leave as well. Um, and they do. They, they, they decide this is our chance to get out of here. It's like the prison gate is suddenly left open by accident and they slip out. They leave. And they sign. They want to sign with Portrait, which is a division of CBS. I think Cindy Lauper uh, is, winds up on, on Portrait, a bunch of bigger bands. I mean, it's an epic. Epic and Portrait were two big labels that CBS had at this time. It's a bigger play for them. Um, Mushroom's pissed. Mushroom's really pissed off. And Mushroom decides as payback, they're going to take all of their scratch vocals, mm. all of their demos for their second album that they, you know, they recorded and they left in the studio. Mushroom paid for the studio time, so it's Mushroom's property. And Mushroom brings in studio musicians and they finish the album and it's called Magazine. Meanwhile, Hart is racing to get their own second album done, <laughs> which they're calling Little Queen. Mushroom um, releases... Yeah, oh, and they record Barracuda for Little Queen. I mean, they, you know, this is one of the last songs they rush to get on there. They say, let's use that song Barracuda we have. Let's get this done. We got to get this done before Magazine comes out because then we're going to, if we let it sit there too long, we're not going to be able to stop them from selling it. So at some point, though, during the, let's talk about the recording of Barracuda here because this is where they're, this is where they're recording Barracuda. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's going on in this thing that's interesting, which is, for one, those, those, that that bending or that arcing when the riff stops, you know, Ro Roger Fisher, it's, you know, he's basically using um, these uh, tremolos, the, you know, these, he's bending the notes with this harmonic tremolo thing that uh, is really interesting because you got to stop the, you got to stop the riff. What do you do when you stop the riff? You got to close it off. And he does that in a really interesting way. But toward the end of the song, there's this alien attack sound like this spaceshipy thing right um and he said that happened when he had a flanger on his guitar which you know distorts the notes you can use it with your hand to distort notes but he leans um i'm sorry it's a um whammy bar yeah it's a whammy it's it, but it's also a device that you can actually use to do that he leans over the amp to to, to adjust something and his stratocaster is too close to the tubes and it creates this really odd um uh, Steppenwolfy kind of sound, and as soon as he hears that, he realizes that's what he wants to use toward the end of the song. I think we have a little piece of that, um, uh, Matt. Why don't you run that? Let's hear what that uh, alien attack thing sounds like. Now you can hear it in the background. We like when you put two walkie-talkies close to each other yeah exactly so mushroom releases magazine on april 27th 1977 which is yeah, kind of nasty i mean think about it you create something um you're not really finished with it you don't like what you've got you've still got work to do on it and for some reason you have a falling out you, whatever you created is locked behind a door that you can't access. It's not your property. You can't take it with you. Um, and whoever owns it decides that they're going to have other people come in and finish it. And it's nowhere near your standards or your creative. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's enough to get you pretty, I would imagine it's enough to get you pretty angry, um, pretty upset, right? Um, so heart sues Mushroom. Uh, and they win the injunction. You know, they what, what was they sue and they put an injunction on magazine that they can't sell anymore, and they actually want those records removed from the store, which sounds like putting the toothpaste back in the tube today, right? You know, you well, but you know, every once in a while, people, you know, listeners listening, I mean, a book will come out 
you know, we've seen that in the last 10 years. I can't remember the books, though, but there's, there's you know, a book comes out and either it's all wrong or somebody was somebody plagiarized something and they have to pull the book and they actually pull, you know, like a Simon and Schuster or a Harper or somebody, you know, has to pull all these books and destroy them. They have to destroy it. It's hard to imagine, but they had to pull all of these records nationally wow. from the store. A magazine had to get pulled. It eventually comes out later, but it gets pulled. And Little Queen is released by heart in May, a month later. And Barracuda becomes a huge hit. And I think, you know, um, it's just, it's, it's fascinating that there's this love story. And it's fascinating that there are these hits. And it's fascinating to me that they're so good, yet they're being maligned because there are two women fronting this group. And this is what I also asked Nancy and Anne. I said, do you think the disco era had anything to do with this? That that the 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 female issue the female image kind of changed during the seventies. Um, Donna Summer. I mean, women women were um, there was an overheated quality about how women were portrayed on covers, in albums, on videos. Um, men had a different view of women that they were subservient and they were to be asked out and and you know they they were they were party they were party objects right studio 54 made a big deal out of this too um and here you have Ann and nancy rock as rockers great great you mean great musicians great songwriters and really great you know Anne's a great singer so nancy's a great singer too and they're just being treated and i asked them that and and you know both of them were like oh you know i guess to some extent but you know the industry was sleazy from the beginning you know they were really as insiders they really felt that you know these um these types these guys who would say something like that um and that i think that was an interesting kicker to the whole thing was was when i asked Ann, um when you're singing this when you're recording this song do, are you thinking of that guy that that said that to you at at you know, behind at the ice rink in East Lansing, after the Steve, after you performed before Steve Miller, was it that guy? I mean, are you thinking of that guy as you're turning on your blowtorch of a voice? And she, she was like, you know, a little bit, but you know what? It was really what I was most pissed at. This is what Ann told me. What I was most pissed about was the culture that allowed some guy to think that he could come up to me and say something like that, and it would be taken seriously, or even thought of as funny, that I wouldn't, that I wouldn't be outraged by something like that. He thought he had permission to do something like that. That's what I was thinking when I was recording that song. So when you listen to that song, I can't listen to the song anymore without hearing no, that No, I mean, thought. that's the kicker of your piece, and you really are standing there with your mouth open when you're finished reading it, because, I mean, how many countless times have we heard that song? Well, if you actually haven't seen the ad, which inspired the joke that this guy made, we tweeted it out, yeah. um, and it's it, it, it's shameless. It's undefiable. Really. It's like yeah. it's 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 uh, what what causes what? Well, you know, it's a male culture. It's a cocaine culture, right? Um, it's it's bragging guys. It's cocky guys um, who aren't really sensitive enough to give thought to anything other than themselves. It's just regurgitated. Yeah, and yeah. that's I'm glad that. I was really glad to hear that. I had a lot of respect for Anne and Nancy before. I have even more now. And um, uh, Matt and I were just saying that, remember that we also, that I interviewed Nancy Wilson, uh, no, Anne Wilson, for uh, my second 
episode of Fierce. She's a fierce uh-huh. woman in music, yeah, and you can absolutely. listen to that on demand. And also playing this weekend um, on right here on SiriusXM Volume. And is it at 3 p.m.? 3 p.m. tomorrow, and also replaying on Sunday, and as well as on demand anytime you want is, is your conversation with Dorothy Carvello, which is very in the mold of the sleazy head that you're seeing here she, in the record label. She was the first female exec at Atlantic Records. Um, uh, A&R exec mm-hmm. and she went through a lot of the same things that Anne is talking about in your piece mm-hmm. and some say some people on Twitter have been saying this is the most fierce of all of my fierce interviews um, she is the most fierce oh, that's great so that's airing this weekend you could listen to it whenever you want that or Ann Wilson or any of the other fierce women Shirley Manson etc um, on demand at Sirius XM volume but it is playing this weekend if you play our channel what's it 3 p.m 3 p.m tomorrow 3 p.m and uh and real quick if you have children in the car while you're listening you might want to cover <laughs> their ears. some f-bombs yeah yeah one last thing i want to say that you listeners should know that ann <clears throat> ann nancy mike and roger and mike derosier are the nicest people i mean so I, you nice. know, they're just Good they're people. artists they're they're you know they've got their stage narcissism and their stage their stage rock egos which is built in that's that exists with but i interview people all the time celebrities and they were refreshingly without pretense they were honest they were open i i there was there wasn't a single question that i asked them that they weren't um, eager to answer as honestly as possible and, and it's, it's beautiful sensitive. it's Absolutely. sensitive stuff so that's worth saying thank you mark and yeah. the funny thing is when ann told me the story at vh1 she when she was describing the guy she was talking about him wearing like a little satin jacket of the day and i knew who it was immediately i like got the the image in my head yeah all right let's yeah. take he a quick break go roller skating exactly <laughs> take a quick break we'll be right back because they all wore those. nice touch they all wore those like those sleazy satin jackets we'll be right back on feedback This is Feedback with Nick Carter and Lori Majewski. The stories behind the hits that shape the world of music. This is Anatomy of a Song on Feedback. It's volume for a Friday. Nick Carter, Lori Majewski, and we're chopping it up with Mark Myers of the Wall Street Journal, yet another anatomy of a song. We've just been uh, breaking down the history of heart and more specifically, Barracuda. Let's take a look at, um, yeah, I figured I'd do for the uh, last segment today because we always do a top 10. We do a top 10 song uh, rundown. Um, I figured I'd pull songs of, pull songs by women who were pissed off or moving up in the world. Um, Let's start. Uh, let's start with Leslie Gore in 1963. You don't own me. Love this song, don't you? I'm not just one of your many Which we should point out, Ann Wilson remade on her latest Absolutely. album. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good point. Uh, let's uh, let's do Aretha in '67. Of course, is Otis Redding's song. It's a cover. What you want, baby, I got. 
let's go to 68 and let's do Joni on Cactus Tree. Don't you love this song? There's a man who's been out sailing in a decade full of dreams And he takes her to a schooner and he treats her like a queen Married beads from California with the amber stones and green It's a wonderful song. I love the line, while she was busy being free. I mean, there's this guy in different locations and He's 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 wishing he had that relationship back, but she's out being free. <laughs> it's a wonderful concept for '68. Any at, for any time, um, we got to do Jeannie C. Riley in '68. Yeah, yeah, this is so good. So you got a widowed wife being told what to do by the PTA, you know? And the PTA was a big thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> big, big deal. This is one of my favorite um, woman songs, Pissed Off Woman or Moving Up Woman or just This Is Who I Am. This is Peggy Lee in 1971. Forty-four pairs of socks and have them hanging out on the line. I can start an iron two dozen ships for you can count from one to nine. I can scoop up a great big dipper full of lard from the drippings can. Throw the skillet, go out and do my shopping. Be back before it melts in the pan. Cause I'm a woman. That became a commercial for what? Remember that? Yeah, it's big. It's probably. I'm sure it's been. Uh, you can use that for almost anything. But it's it's got just this such a great attitude. It could only have been delivered by Peggy Lee. I mean, it's just great. Um, also, seventy one. I mean, it's it's a it's an anthem. It's kind of silly, but it's you know, re-listening to it is actually always better than I think it is. Whenever I hear this song, this is Helen Reddy. I am woman. The midnight special video of this is so good. I am woman, hear me roar in numbers too big to ignore. And so keep in mind during this time, you know, you've got the women's liberation movement, you've got women working. I mean, it's, it's uh, the pill. I mean, women are just, you know, Roe versus Wade is 73, I think. I mean, it, it's it's coming. Women realize, you know, they're. They, they don't have to put up with crap anymore. They can they can sort of make their they can do their thing and push back. It's never never going to be perfect, but uh, hopefully will be soon someday. Um, hey, Gene Knight, seventy one. Let's do it. So good. <laughs> Who do you think you are? The big stuff. Let's do uh, Loretta Lynn, The Pill, in 1975. This is revolutionary. Now you think about what's going on today. It's... Well, it's interesting. This is a perfectly timed segment, and we didn't plan it this way. <laughs> From Loretta Lynn too. Yeah, I mean, country was very conservative. Unbelievable, and that's you know that's the South. Uh, and let's do uh, let's do the Runaways in '76. 
mean, it's a liberation song, pure and simple. John Jett and the gang. All right, let's do the last one. Um, Native New Yorker, Odyssey, in oh, 1977. So good. And this is, this is working women. This is women moving up. I like this better than nine to five. Got the disco in. Yeah, so good. <laughs> All right, as always, we are tweeting out the uh, anatomy of a song. Check it out at SiriusXM Volume. Monday, Kenny Wayne Shepherd is with us. You have a good weekend. Mark Myers, thank you, sir. Thank hey, you, Hey, thanks, guys. Peace out, bitches. Bye.